Welcome back, folks, to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast conversation series. Henrik Clausen is back with Kevin Hauser of Lucos, and they're going to talk about the editor. He's the editor in chief there, and they're going to talk about how the science of lighting is developed, developed, and what gets rejected and what gets upset, accepted, and why, and so on. It's a great conversation. I've already listened to it. That's right. But before we get to that, Greg Eric. We got to go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H dot com. That's KeystoneTech.com. Light made easy. Hey, they have everything LED, and I mean everything now because they have recess cans. I know. And I they saw did that. it right. Ooh. I'm telling you, from the beginning, I looked at them, and I've seen samples of them. Uh, they have the wafer style. They have the one that recesses. They have all the sizes. They have emergency capability built into it, and I've run into that often. And it's not a significant price increase. It's a, it's a price increase like you'd expect mm-hmm. when you have an emergency built in. But nowhere near what the other ones out there are like. So if you need a recess can, check Keystone out. Go to KeystoneTech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. And, of course, brought to you by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. That's right. we got a convention coming up in September, Greg Eric. I'm excited. Back at it, buddy. Let's go. Oh, that's right. I think it's the September the 13th to the 16th. I have it you right. got it. I remembered yeah. it. And we're, we're, we're tying things up with Arclight, the Arclight Summit, so it's going to be a big, hot party. So come on down. But for right now, Henrik, coming in hot. Thank you. Well, we're back here on the Get a Grip on Lighting, and I'm Henrik Clausen, running the Fagerholm Lighting Academy in Copenhagen in Denmark. And I have gotten the opportunity to invite some guests to see what's going on in the lighting industry and the back behind in the uh, behind the scenes. This time it's uh, Chief Editor of Loikos, Kevin Hauser, a good friend. And Kevin, what what is Loikos actually? Oh, well, Henrik, let me start by saying thank you for inviting me as a guest on this podcast. I'm really delighted to be here and uh, looking forward to our conversation about Lucos and other matters related to scientific publishing and, and so on. So, um, yeah, so, so Lucos is the technical journal of the Illuminating Engineering Society. Um, we're a peer-reviewed journal, and so we accept scientific papers on a number of different lighting-related topics. So our scope of interest is really applied lighting and applied illuminating engineering. Um, you know, we publish a lot of work on human responses to light, uh, color, glare, daylighting, uh, various lighting technologies. Occasionally, we'll publish work on scientific ap- uh, aspects of a lighting application. Um, but in general, we're scientific peer-reviewed journal about that. Yeah. So, so what does the chief editor do? What, how, how does a Dave look for you? Sure. Um, yeah, good question. I, I think it's a good question because maybe a lot of people may not understand what's happening behind the scenes. You see, you see the um, the journal when it's published on a quarterly basis and online. But like, how do we get from the submissions to you know where we go um, and what we yeah, end exactly. up publishing? So I, I think. Um, <clears throat> So let, let me, maybe let me sort of step through the process. So as a peer-reviewed journal, what we're looking for is work that has scientific merit, that is highly defensible and can be substantiated with data. Um, let's so, let's just so that, hold it on. You, you use the word peer review. What, what's yeah. that? Is that some of your peers who are reviewing it or what, what does that sure. mean? Sure. So when, a, when, a, when somebody submits their work to Lucos, the, the workflow is such that it first comes to me and then I do a basically a desk review. And so I'll be the first one to look at the manuscript and I'll make a decision at that point whether or not to either send it out for peer review or desk reject. And a desk reject decision would be if I received something that I thought were was either an inappropriate topical fit with glucose, so it wasn't appropriate for the readership, or it had some really serious glaring problems with the technical merit and the scientific work. And I didn't feel like I even needed it to send to peer reviewers um, to be technically evaluated. Now let's assume that it gets through that step and it goes out to peer review. And so generally I'll invite a minimum of two reviewers. Sometimes it could be more, but generally it's two reviewers. And those would be people that have topical expertise. Usually it's people that have published either on that or a related topic also in the peer review literature. So it's essentially, you can think about it as peers, you know, a, a jury of peers that's evaluating the technical and scientific merit of the work that's been submitted. So those reviewers will then get back to me. They'll provide written documentation about 
both the pros, the positives, and the cons, the negatives, the things that need to be addressed in the manuscript. The peer reviewers will also make a recommendation to me, which could be something like reject, or it could be reject and resubmit, which means it's really bad, but maybe there's some good things with a massive overhaul. This could be made publishable. Then there could be some level of revision, major revision, minor revision, or an acceptance. You know, if the paper is in really good shape, we go through acceptance. Now, typically with most papers, um, they'll go through multiple review processes. So it's very, very rare for a paper to be submitted, the reviewers to come back and say accept. It's almost always the best case scenario is that it needs some level of revision. It will come back to me, I'll send it out to reviewers a second time, and it will go through a, an additional vetting process. And usually, you know, we'll have two or three rounds of review before a paper is Lucas is, has a rumor, you are pretty tough with your peer reviews. Do you feel you're tougher than the rest? Well, um, I, that's good, actually. I, I think I'm okay with that, right? Uh, what we want to do is we want to publish the most scientifically defensible work. And we want readers to be able to go to what's published in Lucos and feel like they're getting something that is rigorously peer reviewed, rigorously evaluated by a group of highly qualified reviewers, not, not, not just reviewers that are unqualified, but reviewers that know the topic and are highly qualified and have basically accepted that work as having technical merit. But it doesn't really matter whether it's proof the point, the, the hypothesis of their research, or if it neglects it. That's not what you're judging. You're judging the content, the process, right? That you're, I, I'm really glad that you brought that up, yes. So there are some journals, and Lucos is not one of them, that really have a um, predisposition toward like you know positive research results. But we, we are actually looking more about the process, the rigor, and then just whatever the conclusions come out of that, if it's if it's rooted and grounded in the data that's collected, we're okay with that. So um, we might call that a null result. Like people were trying to find something, but they did the whole experiment and they did not find that that certain effect existed that they wanted to find. We'll publish that. We'll publish a null condition result. You also sometimes publish people's point of view, which is more like a statement you have some brilliant papers yourself where you like have read probably a lot of them and then come up with a summary for us because I, you know, I read scientific papers every day. So I'm one of your big customers and it's, um, how can I say it? It's really nice when you guys integrate something, Peter Boyce, for instance, you or whoever knits something yeah. together for us. Is that a part of your task also? It is. is so... Fun? No, well, actually, it's a great learning process as an author to do that. But I think it actually, and I'm, and I'm delighted to hear that you uh, find value in some of that kind of work that's been published in Lucos and elsewhere. Um, it's, a, it's a review, basically a scientific or technical review um, that provides a, an overview of a topic from a, from a high level of scholarship. So really trying to synthesize the literature on a topic. It could be discomfort glare. It could be daylighting. It could be human-centric lighting or other health aspects of lighting. Um, you know, color rendering, for example, we've had reviews on that topic as well. You know, so all of those things, I think, provide, for somebody new to the topic or that's looking for sort of a broad understanding of the landscape of what's known and unknown within a topic, those review articles, if they're well-crafted, can be a really good entry point for, you know, deeper analysis or deeper reading, you know, after that initial entry. Who do you think your main customers are? Who is, is it? Is it scientific community, industry, leg, legislation, research? Who, I, who's sure, sure. So, so firstly, so I'll, I'll get your answer. But firstly, we have no geographic boundaries with Lucos. So even though it's operated by the Illuminating Engineering Society of North America, we actually have more authors and more readers from outside of North America than from inside of North America. And we know that because we get really good statistical breakdowns of readership through our publisher. Um, and, and so as far as the audience of, of readers, so I would say we have multiple constituencies. Um, any member of the Illuminating Engineering Society automatically has full access to Lucos. And so we are, Illuminating Engineering Society is supporting Lucos financially. It's not a profit center for IES. In fact, just the opposite. IES is, is supporting financially the publication of Lucos. So member dues, for example, go to support the publication of Lucos. 
And so we do have to think about them as a core audience because ultimately they're the people that are primarily paying for it. Um, but certainly the, the scientific community is our, that, that's where we get our content from. And so my personal interaction with the scientific community of both reviewers and authors is, is really important to maintain a healthy flow of new submissions that come into Lucos. Uh, you know, one thing I didn't mention, our, our acceptance rate is right around 30%. And so as it happens, I spend most of my time on manuscripts that are rejected rather than accepted. Uh, which is sort yeah. of, you know, the life of the editor. You, you see the good stuff that comes through, but not all the 70% the of the stuff that was. No, I would right. actually have asked you about a percentage, but now you brought it up yourself. It's, it's pretty interesting that so many people are trying and, and not passing and maybe submitting it to somebody else after you. And maybe they are lucky there because they have another perspective, not whether it's wrong or right or wrong, but it, that's... Um, yeah, I, I'm happy to hear that it's that it's 30. It feels a bit like that. I was wondering about the IES because I have been a member of the IES for many years myself as an electrical engineer or illuminating engineer. But I was actually recommended by Amadeb, who is in India, and he said mm -hmm. it's probably some of the best educational material there is in this new database. It's it's huge. Have you contributed to the IES database? Um, I don't know that I have, except through Lucos, but you're correct. The, no, but that's uh, what I meant. Sorry. Yeah. Through Lucos. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, the online lighting library that um, IES has put together is, is a really vast resource with all the recommended practices and design guides and lighting measurement series. And um, it, it's, it's really wonderful. And, and IES has also moved into yeah. archiving webinars and, and putting up other credits for continuing education units. So it, it really is a, a fairly vast resource at this point. How do you how do you rank, now we've talked about Lucas and something else, but how do you rank globally the, uh, the publishing channels? Because sometimes when I need to search for literature, it's, it's hard to know where to look. Now it's easy because we know each other, but how do you sort of rank it? There's a lot of light in psychology, medical journals and stuff like that. Where do yeah. I go and to find that stuff? Yeah, so where, where do you go? That's a good question. And, and journal rankings are actually another really interesting question because we have all sorts of metrics that are used to rank both journals and then individual articles that are published within journals. Things like the Thomson Reuters impact factor, um, which is basically a measure of citation, of a measure of impact. Um, yeah, I mean, we, 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 we pay attention to that. We have to, because the reason we do is because researchers pay attention to that. And so many researchers and their academic institutions want them to be publishing in, quote, high impact journals. And um, the most common way of evaluating the impact of a journal is through the impact factor. And so the impact factor of glucose, for example, I think is 3.3 or 3.4. Um, some number like that. And what that means is, so that's, that's recomputed on an annual basis. And so right now we're in 2022. So we have the 2021 impact factor. And so that means actually for the papers published, actually for the papers published in 2018 and 2019, we count the citations to those in the year 2020. And then we use that as a numerator. And then in the denominator, we have the number of papers that were published. And so roughly what that means, 3.3, it means there's roughly 3.3 citations in the year 2020 to the every single article that was published in the preceding two years. That's, that's impressive. It is. It's a, but, but, but these quotations, is that, how do, you, how do you judge if a person quotes it and it's, has the right connection or the right reason. Sometimes you see when you read like there are like 50 places down there all, if you read a paper then there are 15 people or 15 papers they are quoting or 50 papers. How do you feel about that? Is it important that it's um, if they quote something for your paper that is quoted from an equal level? I don't know how really yeah, so to frame that question. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, most papers, scientific papers that are reporting research results, they start with a literature review. 
And I, yeah. I think about it as we're always essentially standing on the shoulder of giants. You know, the, the work that we're doing in lighting research and other fields, we're expanding pre-existing knowledge and we're, we're moving our understandings a little bit further along. And it's important to provide context. And that, I think, is what most references and citations are doing. They're providing a context. Yeah. You know, these past researchers found this and this, but an open question was this other thing. And this is this open question that we're exploring here. And so collectively, that enlarges our body of knowledge. And I mean, the thing that I, I love about the scientific research process is it's never over and it will never be over. It's... Yeah. I mean, a, a common analogy on this is like if we think about knowledge as being an island, that the shoreline is all the unknowns or the reasons for additional curiosity. And so as our island expands, the shoreline is also expanding. You know, so for every new answer that we get, we have two new questions that are unanswered and we just continue to march along in scientific progress. Yeah. How do you how do you think in general that the, the public interest or the professional interest is it going up or down or is it is it a flat line if you look like 15 years 20 years back say the interest in accessing professional papers or some published papers yeah how do you feel um, that yeah that's a good that, that's actually that's a really good question I think the interest in lighting research and lighting in general has gone way up. And I think we have solid state lighting and, you know, light, lighting's become more of a high tech digital world, um, you know, versus the analog world that it was when, you know, when I started in lighting. And I yeah. think that's been extremely positive for lighting. Now, as far as scientific research, um, th this is a little confusing to me um, and sometimes a little concerning because I, I think we are, If we look within the scientific community, um, I think it's just grown stronger and stronger. But I think if we look more generally, there's more divisiveness in um, sort of the consumption of scientific research than I than I think I've seen before. Um, there's more of a perhaps a need or a desire by some, not everybody, to sort of be on one side or another and make knee-jerk reactions about topics. And um, yeah. Like that, on Twitter or stuff like that. Yeah, Twitter, social media feeds. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you're either on this side or that side when really everything's more of a shade of gray. Um, and I'm I'm not sure where that comes from or, or how to how to deal with that. But you know, from a scientific journal point of view, we just have to hold really high standards. Do you, how do you think yeah, I get it. How how do you think about an expiration date, because some of the time when I look, you know, then you are guided back to a paper file, Hopkinson or Gould or something like that, which is really a long time ago. And you and I had a discussion about about a, before the third receptor or the the uh, intrinsically photosensitive ganglion cells were discovered. Is that still valid? I think that's a very interesting process because sometimes when I go back, I find a paper that's 15 or 20 or 25 years old, and I think, wow, that's it. But do you somehow have a feeling for an expiration date? Should we say everything more than 20 years old is not valid anymore because we didn't know how our vision system worked at that time? You know mm -hmm. what I mean, Karen? Yeah, I do, I do know what you mean. Actually, so I, I think we need to evaluate every paper based on its merit and, and within the scientific context of the time and what was knowable at the time. And so I think you do raise a valid point that as we learn new knowledge, some of the observations that were made in the past maybe have the potential to be reinterpreted but, based on new new discovery. But we, we, let's, let's grab that thought because here in Sweden, some journalists are really complaining about some of the things we said 25 years ago. That was fake and you know that wasn't really good research, but it was at that time it was actually published it was printed it was quoted but but now you can see okay yeah it was about uh, talking about an intensity um luminance and a color temperature and no spectral distribution i understand if we should do it today we should have added that but 15 20 25 years ago it was okay to say it's 4000 kelvin 500 lux and then you didn't really have any tolerances really or or anything, how you got the spectral or the color temperature. 
So it, it's probably sure. also been tougher. But do you still think, I, I haven't thought about what you said, you have to see it in the context, but can we use it today in another context, even though we see this work was done 25 years ago, it was cool, it was valid, interesting. But now what we know now, is there a, a reject date? Sure. So, so I think, so the issue I think you're bringing up is a really good one. And to me, this is kind of a consideration of, in the scientific publishing world, we would call internal validity versus external validity. And so internal validity is when you have a, a scientific research study, maybe it's published. And in and of itself, it's completely valid for the context of what was published. So for example, let's take something like you said, maybe, maybe the experimenters were using um, triphosphorofluorescent lamps or calcium halophosphate fluorescent lamps, and it had a broad distribution or maybe a tri-band distribution associated with it. And realistically, if we go back before the time of LEDs, you know, we, we had a very limited granular control over how we could change the spectrum. And we could change the proportions of those, yeah. of those phosphors in order to adjust our color temperature, but we couldn't radically synthesize and change things on a wavelength by wavelength basis in the way that we can do it now with LEDs. And so they made, it, they made a perhaps a generalized conclusion that 4,000K would lead to this and 3,000K would lead to that. And within the technology that was available during that time, that might be perfectly reasonable. But now yeah. we can get 3,000 Kelvin in a hundred different ways, depending yes. on which, you know how many emitters we use, how we adjust them, what proportions we do. And so that generalized conclusion from 25 years ago doesn't apply today, not because it wasn't internally valid for that experiment, but because we can get to that point in so many different ways today, it's not externally valid in real time. That actually leads me back to my question about the expiration date. Is that something I have to set for myself then? That I say, okay, I read the paper, I see this is 25 years. I feel personally the world has changed so much, technology driven or culturally driven. It's not really usable anymore. Or the argument, even though it's the same text, it's not as solid as it was when I read it 25 years ago. Yeah. So is that um, up I to still, the individual so or is that a part of your job? I, I think actually there are really a great deal of seminal texts of really good knowledge that are extremely valid today. And, mm. you know, I would also look at them as, you know, as that knowledge was developed, it led to new hypotheses and new questions. And so like we're continuing to develop and evolve. And I mean, we can we can look back on work from 100 years ago and say, oh, yeah, that was nice. It was quaint. And similarly, people <laughs> maybe 20 or 30 years from now are going to look at the work that we're doing now and say, oh, that was nice. That was quaint. But, you know, now we, we've gone beyond that. And, they and that's sure okay. will. I mean, yeah. You know, science, science expands and acknowledging that our knowledge is limited is, is okay acknowledging that maybe we got something not quite right is also okay. And I know if I can expand on this a little bit, you know, I know that can seem unsettling Please. to somebody that might want like to know, well, scientists should have the ground truth. We never have the ground truth. I mean, what we have is a lot of curiosity to try to get things a little farther. And so I actually think changing our mind, pivoting, saying, oh, we learned this new thing, that other previous thing wasn't quite right. We need to redevelop our theories or change our mathematical models or whatever that might be is really a sign yeah. of growth and improvement, not a sign of, you know, capitulating and saying, oh, you know, we, we got it wrong. But do you think it's a, it's an age thing? Because I was much more convinced about, I knew everything about lighting 25 years ago. Now, it, no matter what people ask me, say, ah, on, on that, I don't really know, you know, how do you feel personally about that? Um, well, I, you know, there's, it's a great question. There are some things that I probably have a lot of conviction on. Uh, let, let me give an example. Uh, I would say like, you know, vision deteriorates with age. I, I think yeah. we can say that with a lot of conviction. And that, and I don't mean to say that if, you know, a 70 year old person automatically has worse vision than a 20 year old, but on average, if we took a statistical sample and we took 30, 70 year olds and we measure their vision and we took 30, 20 year olds and we measured their vision 
and we and we plotted it out on whatever it might be, a, you know, a Snell and I chart for visual acuity or a color discrimination test or whatever it might be, we would find statistical distributions. And mm -hmm. the statistical distribution for the 20 year olds would say that they have better vision than the statistical distribution yeah. for that group of 70 year olds. You know, I, and I can say that with a lot of conviction. Um, now, there might be two people at the, the tails of those distributions. You know, the worst vision of the 20-year-olds might be worse than the best vision of the 70-year-olds, yes. but nevertheless, you know, and that tells us something about applied lighting. Like if we're designing a senior living center, we should probably deal with that differently from a lighting point of view than say a childcare center, which is going to have younger occupants. And, and so that does have implications that I can say with, I think, a lot of conviction. But there, there are other things which I, I might have more, much more reservations and I wouldn't have the same degree of certainty. Like I, I, I'm fairly certain, I think we know from the literature that light has an effect on our circadian photobiology, but what mm -hmm. we should do with that information on a day-to-day -day basis in applied lighting practice is actually a very different matter. You know, like for example, is, is the light that I'm exposed to in my office working environment for my eight hour workday going to affect my sleep or not? I can't say for certainty yes or no because it depends on too many other non-lighting factors. It, uh, let me just hold on to that because I do a lot of helping people doing um, dementia homes, psychiatric wards, hospitals, where you have pretty good grip on people. As soon as you go to offices, schools, and kindergartens, you know, they're all over the place. It's very hard to find out how much they're exposed to, what wavelengths, what spectrum, and so on. So. But, but still at that community where we have a user group of, let's say, nurses, doctors, patients, um, psychologists, and I ask them, who are we doing this lighting for? And they say, for everybody. And I tell them, no, we can't do it for everybody. We can do it for the doctor, for the nurse, for the patient. Who are you choosing? And they stubbornly you know, keep saying, we want good lighting for everybody. And I think with this knowledge that we are gaining now, we, we need to be more that let's make really good lighting for the patient. They recover faster. Maybe the doctor has some challenges, but do you see anything like that in your, from your perspective? Um, I, I think you're right. I actually completely agree with what you said. And I think prioritization in the design process is so critical. And I mean, as you're describing, there's a, there needs to be that kind of conversation that you just brought up between the design team and the owner and to try to get to a point of, who are we designing this space for first and who are we designing this space for second? And in many cases, probably in that hospital setting, you might be able to have both by having different light settings or different scenes, you know? So there's a, a scene that's oriented toward healing sure. and maybe but another yep. scene oriented toward examination. We, we probably normally get to that, but it's, it's the first reaction is that <clears throat> it's just light. It's for everybody. And, um, right. Or maybe they have had a colleague in the industry in there telling them that they can do everything. And then I come and say, I'm not sure you can do everything. You maybe have to select a little bit. And then suddenly the burden of proof lies to me when they say, oh, can you prove that they were wrong? Could you elaborate a little bit on who's proving that they are right or they are wrong? Because I tell them virtually that come on, it's my job to prove that I'm right. I'm not here to prove my colleague in the industry are saying something rubbish or are wrong. But how is it scientifically sure. with this burden or, or evidence? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to prove anything as being absolutely true. I mean, it, the, yes. this, the scientific method is just not built that way. I mean, it's much easier to disprove things than it is to prove things. Um, you know, but even then, what we're doing is we're gathering evidence. We're trying to gather as credible evidence as we possibly can. And then, you know, we develop a, a level of certainty or doubt or a degree of conviction over that information that we have. And, um, you know, we, we also have to think of, of that, that consideration of internal validity versus external validity that, that mm. relates to scientific work. Um, experience obviously comes into play. In, in all of this when we're dealing with applied lighting in practical situations. But um, yeah, and I, I think persuasiveness actually is, is important. And, and I don't mean that in a, in a negative marketing sense. I, I, I mean that in a real genuine sense of the value of, 
of clear communication to bring other people on board to be confident in the solutions that are being developed. So, you know, I think persuasiveness from designers and scientific researchers, you know, really does matter. But it, it has become much, much tougher over the last years. And it's, it's like there's so many things. But if you imagine wholesalers, distributors, installers, electricians, how on earth should they know these things that you and I are nerding about? It's That's why it's so great that we get this opportunity to talk a little bit more public because it's um, there are so many things and you cannot know everything. And my marketing department at Fagerhul always says, it's too complicated and you need to do it more simple. And you, you reach about it just becomes you say, sorry, I can't do it any more simple. People need to know what a spectral distribution is. They didn't need to yeah. know it 15 years ago, but now they need to know. So it's it's also, yeah. I'm, I'm experiencing a loss of interest, passion, competence, call it what you will, they're out there that they just want one number, a quality number for a fixture. This fixture is eight, or this fixture is 10, and, and you can't do it like that, and especially not in a design installation. So I think it's really complex, and you are doing an eminent job to help us understand all the parameters with the with the job that you're doing. Well, That's super cool. thanks. But I want to I want to kind of put an optimistic spin on this. I, you know, I think people are really smart. And, and I think um, nice. I think it, I think it is a challenge to take complex information and present it in short, coherent, understandable ways, making the yes. information valuable. I know um, I'm sure you're familiar with the IES method for evaluating light source color rendition, known as TM30. Um, oh, yes. You know, in, initial reactions to TM30 were, it's too complicated. There's too many numbers. But once people spent a little bit of time with it, and, and I and others like um, Mike Royer, for example, at PNNL and um, Tony Esposito and, uh, you know, many others basically went on kind of a roadshow where we would give lots of presentations about TM30 and, you know, within 30 minutes or even less, somebody could understand exactly how to use TM30, why it's valuable, why it's giving more information. Um, so it does require that little bit of investment. And, you know, we put up webinars to hope, hope people watch. Yeah. Um, but it does require, uh, in, uh, you know, some investment. Well, I, in <clears throat> I did something similar for Eagle Lighting in Australia and New Zealand where I was traveling around because they had to vote for whether they would stick to the CIE or the switch to TM30. And they needed sort of like pro and cons. And it's, I have the same goal in my life as, as you just say, that try to do, take complex knowledge, read a paper, and then tell people in a simple and easy and hopefully entertaining way that this is how it works. And people really like it, but there are not that many doing that. Or we are pretty alone on that roadshow. So that's why it's super cool to be be part of the podcast as well because maybe somebody listens who normally don't get to meet you and me i hope so so um could you could you just uh, give us a little on your perspective on how now you're a professor as well you teach how do you combine teaching and research and being an editor together how does it how does it feel how does it work for you <laughs> Uh, that's a good question. Uh, time management, I suppose. But yeah, you know, I, I, have, I have a complicated life in some ways professionally, but it's it's really rewarding to me um, because, as you say, I'm a professor at Oregon State University. I also have a joint appointment at Pacific Northwest National Labs, which is a U.S. Department of Energy laboratory, and so I'm affiliated with the Solid State Lighting Group there. Um, and then I'm, I'm editor of, of Lucos. And in addition to that, based on some intellectual property I filed and patented. I've also spun off a, a company My that God. I co-founded commercializing some lighting technology there. So, yeah, so so my days are divided among those different responsibilities. But um, there's a lot of synergy. I mean, there's a lot of overlap between them. I really, I mean, y you know this about me. I really care about credible scientific research and the yeah. publication process. And that is something that touches every responsibility that I have in my life. And, um, you know, as far as, I mean, if I'm completely honest, being editor of Lucos does take a fair bit of my time and it probably has influenced my 
personal productivity as a researcher because there's only so many hours in the day. And so I've chosen to invest time in really the, the cultivation of the peer review process through my role in Lucos rather than working on my own papers. Um, but I'm comfortable with that decision because I feel like I've been able to accomplish some things with Lucos and support other researchers in a way that I hope others have found to be constructive. You, you definitely has, no doubt about that. I feel when I teach at the university in Copenhagen at Aalborg University, I'm giving now a course in what we call evidence-based lighting because it's so important for us to give the young lighting designers come out with some strength, some power when they say this is evidence-based, how to find it. Do you, how do you feel about the generations we've had over the last, let's say, 10 years? Do you feel a difference in the young people? Because it's, it's wonderful that you're so optimistic and I deserved to get that, that it's, it's actually take the positive twist because I always think I do that. And it's, um, and it's so important. But how do you, if you look at the average class over the last 10 years, are we flatlining, going up or down in commitment, uh, passion, all the stuff we need? So I, I've never I've never worried about the best students in in the classes, right? Um, I mean, there's there's always sort of like some really exceptional high performers that are going to just knock it out of the park and do great things for the world, you know. But um, you know, there there's there's also a, a normal distribution in student performance as well, and you know, it it has. I, I mean, I, I certainly have had really excellent students, and some that have you know not risen to that higher challenge. I do think, um, at least in the United States, there, you know, students are facing different challenges today than perhaps I did as a student or people mm -hmm. did even 10 or 15 years ago. Um, cost of education is very high in the U.S., so that puts pressure on, and many students are graduating from university with debt, and so that forces them to think hard about how they're going to get through university. I think um, there's probably a greater number of students in the U.S. that are working either part-time or need to basically make ends meet. Um, you know, yeah. when I was a university student, my full-time job was being a university student. And, and I mean, yeah. I look back on that now realizing I was very privileged to have that opportunity yeah. and to not need to have a side job to, to um, you know, to support my education. Um, so, so I, I do, I, I, I do, I do think about that. You know, I, I think, um, they're balancing a different life context today than maybe people from 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, the life context that they were balancing. But I do still see, I mean, I see a lot of curiosity. I see a lot of high performance. I, I also see a, a lot of interest in um, return on investment almost, like the value of the education, you know, more yeah. inquisitive asking about why. And, and that should sharpen the university to provide content that is highly relevant and is not superfluous because that superfluous content takes time and money. Yeah. Do, do you experience older students? Because in, it, at the University in Albro, we, we see that there are people coming to make a career change. They may have been architects, psychologists, anthropologists, engineers, and then they take a lighting design module on top of that. And it's so cool to see these people work together because they have such different backgrounds. But in general, we have we have many people in 30, above around 30 years, who actually takes two years off their work to study this. So it's really return on investment, as you pointed out. Do you feel it? Do yeah. you have the same way in in the states that you see elderly, not elderly, adult people? Yeah, mid, mid career education. Making um, I, I've not seen a lot of that, to be honest. Uh, you know, occasionally we do have what might be called a quote non traditional student who. Um, you know, with, with with family and children, and you know, more further along in their in their life path. But um, I have I have worked now at Oregon State University, and at the pre previous universities I've worked at are are large land grant state institutions that tend to attract more of the conventional um, student population coming out of okay. high school mm -hmm. and then going into college. I have to go a little bit back to Lucas, too, because some of your papers are free. I always get happy when I see a paper, oh cool, this is for free, and some of them are relatively expensive if you buy papers on a regular basis. Why is that, um, right. and how does that come, that some are? Some sure, are yeah, so, 
Yeah, a great question. I'm glad you brought that up, actually. So Lucos has a what's called a hybrid publishing model. And so it's a subscription access unless authors pay an optional open access fee called an article publishing charge to make it open access. And that article publishing charge, if it's paid by the authors or sometimes subsidized by somebody other than the authors, uh, that essentially is paying the subscription for any of the readers. But IES is really, really interested in the um, considerations of access, inclusion, diversity around Lucos and around the peer-reviewed publication process. In fact, just two weeks ago, I guess it was, we, um, we ran a, uh, an open access survey to all the contributors to Lucos, either as reviewers or as authors and, and, and some readers as well, to sort of probe interest in converting Lucos into a fully open access journal. Now, the, the issue with that okay. is the only way we can do that and make it financially viable is since we, we lose subscription money, we still have to supplement that somehow. And normally that's done with article publishing charges. So authors end up paying to have their work published. And you know that, that potentially comes with its own set of problems. If you happen to be an author from a wealthy institution or from a wealthy country and you can avoid, afford those article publishing charges, then no problem. But if you're from a country or a region of the world where your currency does not allow you to pay those article publishing charges, then that becomes a barrier to publication. And that's something that IES does not want to happen. And so uh -huh. we're working through this all, but, um, and I don't want to give too much away because it really is a working conversation, but I, I you know, I, I hope that there's a possibility for us to find a way to make Lucos completely open access, but at the same time have IES providing, um, I, I don't know what we would call them, but you know, scholarships or some mm. type of cost reductions for people that cannot afford otherwise to yeah. publish in Lucos. And so, I mean, we're, yeah. we're trying to balance the needs of authors, the needs of readers, and doing it in the most equitable and fair way that we can. That sounds like a, I understand that you are working on that, and it would be it would be great because sometimes it is actually maybe not especially with you, but in general, it is um, expensive, and I need to convince my boss that I need a budget for buying papers because I buy a lot of papers during a year and it is it adds up if you buy Correct. a couple yeah. a week and you just need to read 10 lines or something just to get get their point of view or whatever so it's um but it's interesting if you somehow could uh, could do that because I think we sponsored some of the research that we thought could be beneficial for people and 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 it's but we are in a part of the world as you said where we can afford it at least for the time being. Right. So so that's just right. wonderful. So we could help there. And Henrik, I will mention I'll... too, with, with my Lucos editor hat here on, um, the best way to get right now to get access to Lucos is joining IES because the mm -hmm. annual membership fee, I believe, it depends. For um, emerging professionals, I think the annual membership fee is $100 US dollars. And that includes access to Lucos, including the entire archive um, going back okay. to 19. 72. Um, and I think for full members that are not emerging professionals, don't quote me on this. I, I know it's being recorded, but I want to say it's like $200 to be a member. And so that provides full access to everything published in Lucos. I am actually a full member, have been for many years, but I didn't know that actually that that was the way in because I also so buy from, from you guys on a regular basis. So it's good to know. I think there are more than I that, that doesn't that doesn't know that so um yeah that's cool so log into your so the way to get there is log into your into the ies website and once you log into your member account on the is website you can click a button that will take you to lucos that will and then you will be behind the, the paywall and everything will be accessible for free okay thank you that's the, that was good information now we have talked for a while kevin and it's wonderful but could you give me a must read list let's say not for me but for our audience because i, I hope i have read what you would put on your must read list but uh, is there something where you say five papers that everybody should know you actually made i think something available a year something a couple of years ago that was like classical papers or something like that yeah, gosh, um, you're putting me on the spot. I don't, I don't have a top five off the top of my head. Um, 
IES did put together a collection of 100. So for the centennial of the Illuminating Engineering Society, which was actually in 2006. Was it really together, 100? Maybe it, it was. was. 100. Nope. They put together 100 articles from the first 100 years of IES. Um, but those those are really, truly classic articles. And of course, they stop at 2006 because that was when that was put together. Um, you know, I, so I, I would say topics like I, I would and I don't necessarily have the, like pick this paper, but I, I would have a review paper on color, color and color rendering within that top five list. I would have mm -hmm. a review paper on um, probably visual comfort, visual discomfort, glare in that list, because I think those are key topics. Uh, I would ha have something in there about daylighting and um, and hard to pick just one though, right? But I think there needs to be something in there about daylighting. I'd have another paper in there about non-visual effects of light and um, I don't know, maybe call it human-centric issues or how light and health interact and come together. So that would be yeah. that would be a fourth review paper. Um, and depending yeah. on how broad somebody's scope or, or interest in lighting was, I'd have something in there about outdoor lighting, you know, so maybe maybe roadway or transportation or general you know, pedestrian area. Yeah. Are you thinking uh, wildlife sort of uh, or dark sky or something like that? Or is that out of your scope? Completely within our scope. And I, and I think okay. an area that we really need to be giving Biodiversity much is the more right consideration word. Sorry, yeah. to, yeah, than, than we are. I mean, um, I do, I related to what you just said. So you, you sort of prompted a thought in me here. Um, you know, I think for many years, what we've done with lighting tends to evaluate lighting on very short time frames, almost an instantaneous time frame. You know, we, we evaluate lighting in pictures in magazines based on, you know, a particular point of view. And we, we think of the immediate gratification of somebody walking into a space and having a reaction, whether it's indoor or outdoor, you know, but yeah. we know that lighting has, especially outdoors, very significant impacts on other non-human ecosystems that we're a part of, so flora and fauna. And I, and I think the disruption that we're causing with outdoor lighting at night, it's inevitable that it will come back to us. It just doesn't come back to us on time spans of weeks or months. No. It comes back to us on spans of years and decades. And so I, I do, I am concerned actually about the, the level of ecosystem disruption that electric lighting is causing, you know, because it really creates winners and losers, um, you know, maybe, for example, you know, the light can cause insects to come to it. The insects end up being eaten by bats. The bat population enlarges, the insect yep. population goes down, and that causes a, a cascading yep. disruption in the ecosystem. And actually, it's it's really cool because I, I had a tour in the southern parts of England recently together with a lady from the local bat society. And I was afraid that there would be a really sort of hate love discussion. But she was super cool. She just wanted to relay her knowledge about what bats need to the lighting industry. She wasn't really upset about what we had done with the world. Sometimes you meet people like that. But again, I think out there, there are really good people who want to do the best for people, for, for our fauna, for the world. So it's, um, it's cool. But the time frame, I just made three explanation points after that because that's not something we are good at. We do very spontaneous evaluation. People come in, look at a room, it's lovely, I hate it, or whatever. So um, somehow we should see if we could do better on that. That might just be our, our thank you very much handshake. What do you feel about that, Kevin? Is there anything you, you want to push here at the end to make more people go to university and participate or sign up for Lucas? Is there anything yeah, you yeah, have in mind? Yeah, I mean, I think... Lighting is such a fascinating field. I mean, the, the thing that got me into lighting was the fact that it could be technical and it could be artistic. And there's obviously highly technical and highly artistic people in, in the world of lighting, or you could have some hybrid blend. And I, I feel like me, the thing that drew me was kind of that hybrid blend between left brain, right brain. And when I got into lighting like you, I mean, it was before solid state lighting and LEDs and, and the massive technology transformation that is underway in the field of lighting. And I think how lucky, I mean, how lucky for me to have studied lighting and then 
be like a snowball rolling downhill with all the technology transformations that are that have come and are still to come. I think the best is yet to come. And I mean, I'm, I'm super excited by the potential for color mixed LEDs and spectral tuning hmm. and light health issues and, you know, you know, dynamic things that we can do with lighting. Um, I'm super excited by the potential potential for energy reduction and doing good. Although what I see now is a lot of lighting just being used because we can use it. And so this, mm-hmm. you know, increase in the use of light. And so like when you light everything, you light nothing, you know, so shadows and darkness are still important. And I, and I, I think we need to relearn that or rediscover that. But, you know, I would just say what an amazing time and what an amazing field we're in. And, you know, welcome to anybody that's new to lighting and glad you're yeah. here. You're so right. I promised my wife that I would be 100, and I think there's still a lot to learn, and you sort of put that in perspective. So thank you very, very much, Kevin. It was a pleasure talking to you, and I'm looking forward to shaking hands with you sometime soon again. Thank you very much Me for participating. Well. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Take really care. appreciate it. Keystone Technologies. Go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Greg Garrett, coming in hot. My email box is full of all these amazing recessed cans. Now you got to go out and sell them because I am. They're awesome. Uh, they have all the different colors, all the different sizes, all the different shapes, everything you need for a can. Uh, they look nice. They light well. They have emergency capability built into them. And Keystone Driver. Mm, go to KeystoneTech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com for the easy folks. And, of course, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Committees, LS Evolve. we got a convention coming up. We got uh, educational training programs we're building. You got to join us, but you know what? You can join us in person at the ArcLight Summit. That's right. Nailed and ArcLight have teamed up together, Greg. And how exciting is that? Oh, super, man. We've got to get back after it. And this is going to be awesome to have that. Uh, you know, not only our nailed, we're going to have a nailed portion of the show, but we're also going to combine with ArcLight for everything they have to offer. So two for one conference. Come check this thing out. It's going to be awesome. And so go to nail.org to register for that. And folks, you've made it to the end. Hey, Henrik is pretty popular. It looks like he's going to be once a month with us. So his shows are being downloaded, accepted by you guys like crazy. So thanks to the wonderful Get a Grip on Lighting audience for giving Henrik a great, um, what's the word, Greg? What did they give to Henrik? Um, support. Welcome. Support, yeah. Welcome. I mean, they welcomed okay. into the family. He's over there in Europe. Yeah, he speaks a little funny because he's Danish, but, you know, we, we're okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, folks. Bye for now.